This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Kia ora. welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Rautin. Today, I think we've got a very good balance of books. You've got a book ab- yes. about burnout, and I've got a book about what 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 could be a, a possible way of dealing with burnout. Well, it's um, a very useful book, I found, very clear about looking at high burnout and low burnout, which I had no idea there was a distinction, and um, she's had it herself, Anna Maria Garden has experienced it and uh, learnt about it, done a PhD in it and now a consultant and come back to New Zealand from London. And my book is a wonderful book about going into the mountains and the solace and um, uh, joy that you can have. And if you had burnout, this would be a wonderful (laughs) thing to do. The Spirit of the Mountains, Alpine Adventures and Reflections has been written by Ron Hay. Ron grew up in Gore and went to university at Otago. He became a secondary school teacher and then he entered the Anglican ministry. He was vicar of Tamuka and then Sumner Redcliffs and then he took early retirement to devote his life to writing. His first book, Finding the Forgotten God, won the Ashton Wiley Book Award in 2015. And this book celebrates his life in the mountains. Ron, when were you first captured by by the outdoors and the mountains in particular? Well, I, I can still vividly remember, it's a long time ago now, but uh, going... Uh, as a primary school kid, to um, to watch in the local cinema the the movie of the ascent of Everest, the British expedition uh, that Hillary and Tenzing were on, and um, I remember just the my <laughs> my impressionable mind was blown away by the, the grandeur and the awesomeness of, of the uh, of the Himalayas, Mount Everest in particular, and I think there was something that kind of got into my bloodstream. Uh, from that, from then on, actually, and uh, uh, you lived in in the right sort of area to have easy access um, to the Southern Alps. Yes, that's right. Um, particularly when I went to university at Otago, um, I uh, got involved with the university tramping club. They had an annual instru- climbing instruction course at Arthur's Pass every August holidays, and. That was my introduction to uh, to climbing, as distinct from tramping. And um, of course, the uh, the Mount Aspiring National Park is tucked away in West Otago, so that that became a favourite haunt for trips into the wilderness. It's interesting. I love reading about people going into the mountains, and um, I've read quite a few mountaineering. Um, uh, books and, and writing about the mountains, um, but I'm always very glad that I'm sitting in a in a comfortable chair. Even though I have done some tramping um, in in my past, um, but it's it's quite a special uh, oh gift I think to be able to take readers into 
into those awesome areas and and um, connect them with what what's going on there. Yes, well, I've tried to to do that in the um, first half of the book, particularly um, just examining chapter by chapter um, what what attracts people to the mountains, the um, the call of adventure and uh, the call of beauty, the call of wildness, and the call the call of remoteness, and so on, and and tried to illustrate each of those dimensions with uh, a particular trip or, or expedition into the hills. And um, yes, it was kind of helpful for me too, thinking about uh, how how I would explain the attraction of the mountains for somebody who, who may not have been a, a tramper or a climber themselves. Um, yeah, so uh, that's, that's a key thing about the first half of the book, the, the allure of, of the mountains, the attraction. And it never, it never fades, does it? Every sunset or sunrise or or quiet moment, or getting to the top of a of a particular peak, that still has um, a, you know a, a different and, and a similar resonance, doesn't it? Well, it does. Yes, there's um, there's a real freshness about the natural world, and and you see things in different lights on different occasions. And um, right now, I'm I'm actually looking out my study window at. Um, the 2,000-metre peak, Mount Cloudersley, in the Craigieburn Range, and uh, the light is, is, you know, different each day, and some days there's been snow overnight, and it changes. Um, yes, it's it's just uh, there's a freshness about the natural world that is always there. And it's something that I think we need more and more <laughs> at the moment. There's, uh, you know, people in pandemics... Are going out into into nature, even if it's just a walk around the block, because it's so essential for mental health and and well being. Well, it is. It's it's a tonic. It's it's a healing thing. It's it's good for us in spirit and body. And um, yeah, I, I think more and more people are appreciating that in a what is an increasingly urban world and. People are um, finding that uh, getting into the into the back country, into national parks, doing great walks. You know, there's uh, a whole dimension there that we miss in the city. You also advocate very strongly, and and it's not surprising for somebody who's who's you know been an adventurer and loved the outdoors for us to take um, to preserve it and to be conscious of, of all the things that are threatening that great outdoors? Yes, I, th- I think we we do have to be uh, stewards of the of the natural world and um, it's, it's great that we've, we've got as many national parks as, as we have in New Zealand and in more recent times there have been specific uh, very remote areas that have been designated as special wilderness areas where there's there's nothing man-made, there's no roads, no huts, not even tracks, and so that you can experience the natural world in its really pristine state. I think that's that's great, but um, yeah, we do we do need to to protect what we've got because there's the pressures of commercialism uh, that encroach and. Um, 
just last May, I was uh, on a trip into the neve of the Franz Joseph Glacier and uh, was very conscious of all the, the helicopter flights coming in and going out and uh, that quality of natural quiet that people uh, appreciate in the mountains is, is kind of being eroded away. And I think many people are feeling that about Mount Cook as an area to uh, the intrusion of helicopter flights into the national park. Be, because you're a, a theologian and a, and a um, minister, an Anglican minister, even retired, but I'm sure you still hold your faith, you've been very careful yeah. not to um, load this book up towards... God and and his his creation, you you talk about it from time to time, but you've made it very ecumenical, I suppose, or or um, universal. Yes, yes, it's certainly not a book where I'm trying to preach, and um, the the faith response uh, is there, and but I, I try to um, to come at that in a way that. Everybody can appreciate. I mean, the, one of the, the commonalities that you find in the response of mountaineers to the mountains is this kind of combination of of awe and attraction. And um, I remember Philip Temple, a well-known New Zealand mountain writer, he talked about seeing Mount Cook in the sunrise one day as he drove towards it, and he said it was terrifyingly beautiful. So you've got that combat, that sort of paradox of of awe, uh, even even uh, you know deep awe and attraction at the same time, and I think that sort of speaks to um, the concept of the holy. And so that's not a big part of the book, but it's something I, I do want to uh, to explore a little bit in the second part of the book. You, as you say, um, you talk about all these things, and this, it's lavishly illustrated with pictures of your expeditions over the years. Um, but you also included a lot of very personal um, stories about your particular ventures, um, especially with your with your family and and close friends, and that makes it a very uh, you know, it, it brings the reader right into what's going on and being part of those adventures. Yes, um, that, that's one of the special dimensions, I think, of um, of tramping and climbing trips uh, is, is relationship. Um, I, I quote a, a famous uh, European climber who said a high mountain climb is, is first and foremost a pretext for friendship and... Um, you know, you, you do form bonds uh, with the, the challenges you're facing together, the the, uh, the, the adventures you're sharing. It, uh, it's been great for us in terms of family, um, beginning with trips when our kids were quite young and, and carrying on into adulthood. And in my um, early 60s, I went through a kind of a renewal of tramping and climbing, going with... Um, uh, some of my young adult children at that stage and with their friends. And we had a number of uh, significant trips summer by summer that, uh, yes, were, were like a, a renewal of uh, my first love of the mountains in some ways. 
Well, it's wonderful that you can sit at Castle Hill and look at the mountains around you and you you can access them very easily, I imagine, on a daily basis if the weather's, <laughs> weather's right. That's right, that's right, yes. It's, it's wonderful, actually, not to have to actually drive, um, that I can just walk out the door, put my boots on and... <laughs> And there you are. uh, And I'm onto the, yes, onto the mountains, yeah. You're one of the few people I've read um, being slightly dismissive about Edmund Hillary's um, comment when he came off Everest. You called it it crass. (laughs) I thought that was really amusing. (laughs) Yeah, well, it it was, uh, it was lacking any sense of kind of the the, the awe um, and the wonder, I think, you know, it was... Mm. It was, it's kind of, I mean, it was a low-key uh, key, bit of Kiwi humour in a sense, you know. But um, compared to Tensing's response on the summit, um, you know, there was that sense of wonder. Maybe maybe Hillary felt it, but uh, just that remark to George Lowe when he got back to uh, the South <laughs> Which, Coast, of course, has been, you know, New Zealanders immortalized. love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good on you. Well, thank you, Ron. It's a it's a wonderful book. It it certainly will pull people into the mountains if they haven't, and those who have and love it will will absolutely agree with all the sentiments and the and and enjoy the stories that you've told in this book. Oh, thank you. Thanks uh, for the opportunity to talk. That's that's been that's been good. The book is called The Spirit of the Mountains, Alpine Adventures and Reflections. It's by Ron Hay and it's published by Mary Egan Publishing. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Anna Maria Garden is an independent organisational consultant and she has over 20 years' experience in the field and has experienced running her own practice in London, gaining a reputation for being creative and leading edge. She has a PhD from MIT in Boston and served for nearly five years in the Faculty of London Business School. She now lives in New Zealand and has authored five books. And the latest book is Burnout and the Mobilisation of Energy. Welcome to the programme, Anna-Maria. Thank you. Welcome. Nice to be here, Ruth. Good. Well, when I opened the book and thought about it and I thought, well... What is this? That you? Why are you writing this? Who are you aiming it at? People. I'm aiming it at mainly at people who are burnt out and trying to get out of it. Right. So, what is it? How do you define burnout? That's a very good question to start with. Um, I identify burnout by its key symptom, which is a severe form of energy depletion, which is includes mental, emotional, and physical exhaustion. Um, it includes severe energy fluctuations are usually present, and the person usually feels at limit uh, in some way. In other words, they're overloaded even by something like listening to music or reading a book or talking to people. So that is the core of burnout. If it isn't present, I don't think we have a case of burnout. I think we have a case of something else. 
So um, that's where I start. And if you delve into it a little bit deeper, you get into um, some psychological concepts, which I talk about in the book, one of which is interjection and one is an antihydromia. And um, they seem to be inevitably present in burnout as well. And they help you distinguish between what burnout is and what it isn't. So can you explain those terms a little more? Yes, yes. Interjection is um, when the person has absorbed and taken on board wholesale an idea or a message or a should statement, like you should try as hard as you can, no matter what the results are. That's a classic interject statement that you find in burnout people. Um, and anantiodromia is a very ancient term, and uh, it was used a great deal by Carl Jung, which is where I get it from. And that is about when you have concentrated too much on one way of being or one way of doing things. And it has, uh, during burnout, it, that one way of doing things seems to collapse and your personality turns upside down. And that also is implicated in burnout people is that their personality has suddenly gone this dramatic change. Are there warning signs that we should be more aware of? Um, do you, it seems to me that um, people in high burnout um, are sort of not aware that they think that's what they have to do, whether it's yes. um, the job or the organisation, whatever um, is, um, you know, whatever part of society they're working in. Yes. Um, warning signs. I think the key warning sign uh, for people who are burnt out relates back to this energy depletion. I mean, I think a real clangor is when a burnout, burning out person wakes up after a good night's sleep and they feel as though they haven't been to sleep at all or they feel more tired than when they went to bed. Now, if that is a uh, warning sign where, you know, the person has to really sit up and take notice and start thinking about what on earth is going on here, um, this is peculiar. It doesn't usually happen, even when people are feeling very stressed. It doesn't usually happen that they don't get replenished by sleep or rest. And that is one of the first warning signs, I think, for burnout. So it's quite different from exhaustion or depression. I think it is quite different from dep depression, and so far as that, I don't think it is the same thing as depression. Um, now, I know one person who, for about 16 years, has gone to doctor after doctor, and with this um, being very tired, and the medical professionals that he has seen cannot decide whether it is depression or burnout. So um, it is... Uh, that that is said by me because I'm not sure exactly what the technical definition would be distinction would be, and even trained medical professionals sometimes can't figure it out. I once did a little bit of a uh, analysis of the two and found that depression was indicated by feeling helpless, feeling trapped, being uh, feeling fault with yourself, um, wanting to cry, and the. Burnout people, the distinguishing factors again related back to that particular form of energy depletion that I talked about. Yes, and, and what I really gained from the first few chapters in the book were your very clear examples 
of the difference between high burnout and low burnout because I didn't know that at all and I've been mm-hmm. a counsellor and I, I just um, thought that was so clear for people to read. That's lovely, yes. I've had that feedback from other people that uh, around the mental health sample, the, the manager of that particular organisation, she she leads people to the tables between high and low burnout because she says that's how you get it. I think what you can use the tables for a number of reason, a uh, number of ways. Um, you can see them as this is how you get into burnout if you follow the description of the high burnout people and their description of burnout. And you can also use it, as I did myself, I used the low burnout um, statements to get out of burnout and to prevent burnout. So you have three themes that are described in the passages you're talking about. One is called boundaries. And here you have the high burnout people have weak permeable boundaries between themselves and work or indeed between themselves and other people. And the low burnout people have clear, strong boundaries between themselves and their work. And then you have a second theme, which I've called closure. And I'm getting these themes from gestalt psychology. And in this theme, the high burnout people um, find it very hard to get closure on things that they're doing. For example, if they're studying, they'll keep on um, reading an assignment uh, way beyond the point at which they should stop because they haven't uh, finished it. But there's no point in carrying on because they're not getting anything out of it. But they still carry on, and that's a high burnout stance. Whereas the low burnout people, low yes, low burnout people, will stop as soon as they feel they, they're not getting anything out of it. They will stop work for that day or for that night. So that's another key difference. And then the third difference is I've called it self-investment. And what that is about is that the high burnout people are focused on how much they can put into things. And they they try and give the maximum effort to whatever they're undertaking. And um, the low burnout people have a very different strategy. They will work out what is required in this particular task or activity and then work out how much effort they're going to put into it given what is required. And that's the low burnout strategy. So you see you have three themes there. Um, which can help people get out of burnout by following the low burnout strategies. Yes, well, that's very valuable to learn that difference, those differences, I think, and and it um, made it very clear to me um, now that um, how important to get to low burnout stages for the high burnout yes. people. Yes. Yes. So it's about... Um, all that you've told me, and you go on in the book to look at um, people's jobs that sometimes are um, not helping um, them mm. to get rid of burnout, and um, mm. and then you look at organisations, and that was interesting too. The you know the company I might be working for is there a, a policy of behaving in a high burnout way by most people mm. in, the, in the group. And that's happening quite a lot at the moment, I would think. It seems to be. And in, in, um, yes. in uh, I don't know whether COVID's got anything to do with it, but I, and I think it's just um, 
people are, are more pressed to do things, aren't they? And um, yes. a lot of people are ill, and and especially in the health system, it looks um, even bad in New Zealand, really, who um, have had a pretty good run at um, mm. keeping on top of it. But is that um, do you fi- are you finding that in your practice? Um, I do. I think that over a period of about the last 20 years, not just while COVID has been here, but I think there's been a a tremendous shift in terms of the boundaries theme because the boundaries between people and their employer, their workplace, have got more porous, if you like, more permeable. So there's more invasion of people's private lives by the organisation, even by such methods as emails or texting, you know, Mm. outside of work hours. You know, that's increased tremendously. So you have pressure on burnout from that angle. And I think um, the other other way I, I see it, most strongly is in the self-investment theme where you this is largely a cultural way this gets transmitted I think you get the heroes are the ones who give their all to the organization or give their all to their job and um, that also is one of the leading leading indicators of burnout is it is when the culture of the organization starts to be like that you know, one of the things I did find was that there was no difference between um, high and low burnout for those um, working harder um, along the lines of the high burnout stance. They're they not really getting anything out of it in terms of their um, their performance at the end of the day. And that's because it isn't often an efficient, rational strategy in the first place. But it looks like it is because they're giving their all. So they do sometimes become the heroes and um, unfortunately sometimes crash lands as well. That's true. So um, oh. burnout and, mobilize, and the mobilisation of energy is an invaluable mm. guide to understanding burnout and what it is, how to get out of it and how to prevent it. And thank you, Anna Maria Garden, for um, producing this book. Um, it's going to be a very valuable one for c- people who are in counselling and people who recognise their burnout and can do something about it. So um, I think it's going to be very helpful to lots of people. And it's published by Austin Macaulay Publishers. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.